0: Welcome to this bonus update episode of Weird in the Wade. A podcast about all that's weird, wonderful and a little off kilter in the town of Biggleswade and its surrounding area. Today's bonus episode is a little different I'm going to be revisiting some of our previous stories and giving you updates on what I've uncovered since the episodes aired. I've also got a sneak preview of next month's two-part story and an update on when it will be released. There's an 180-year anniversary to tie in with, you see. I've also got a spooky story to tell you. One that happened to me whilst I was on holiday in May over in Silso on the other side of Bedfordshire. Welcome to Weird in the Wade. Hi everyone, Nat Doig here. I hope you're having a peaceful and weird in a good way day today. I thought the time was right to update you on some of the stories covered previously. I've had such a phenomenal response to the podcast. I started it in May on a bit of a whim after attending UncannyCon and I honestly thought I was being ambitious when I aimed for maybe 50 downloads in the first month. Well, you've been amazing, all of you who are listening. Um, I got over a thousand downloads in the first month and now we're not even a full three months in and there's been over 3000 downloads of the podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'd still be doing this if there were only a dozen of you listening. <laughs> so um, to have so many regular listeners and from all over the world is just Amazing. It is completely mind blowing to me that this is happening. <laughs> and I am blown away by the lovely comments, reviews, and messages that I get, um, especially on social media. And we now have an email address. So if you have any comments or you want to share a story or you've got some suggestions, you can get in touch with us at weirdinthwade at gmail.com. So nice and easy to remember, and it will be in the show notes so please also keep sharing your weird stories with me and chat on the socials as well. Um, We've got podcast account on Threads, um, which is new, so that's really lovely, Um, and also on Twitter, Insta, um, as well as the blog that we have. It's just so lovely to make new like-minded friends online, so thank you. But I don't want to gush too much and be a lovey um you'll be wanting to know about the updates to the stories and i'm hoping you're keen to hear about my strange and uncanny experience at the gardener's house so let's go back to where it all started at the haunted pound stretcher As you'll remember in episode 1, I told the tale of how a bargain shop in Biggleswade had been plagued by poltergeist activity. I did some digging and discovered that the shop's previous incarnation as a furniture store had also experienced a haunting. The ghost was given a name, Aggie, and that had been passed down over the years. One story said that she was a victim of the Great Fire of Biggleswade, but I was able to pretty much discount that as being a likely cause of the unsettling happenings. And there's a bonus episode that explores what happened during the fire and why I don't think there were any victims who were actually killed on the day of it. I also discovered a new theory about how the fire was started, which is all covered in the bonus episode. The Pound Stretcher building is now a fantastic coffee shop and gym and I've been back there on numerous occasions drinking lattes in the space that was previously the upstairs office and storerooms where the presence of Aggie was most often reported. The cafe has a lovely atmosphere and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Staff at the coffee shop and gym did tell me that they still joked that Aggie was about, especially if things like bags of coffee spilled or there were other mishaps, but no one had any unsettling stories to tell. So after the episode went out, I was contacted by more people saying that they had found the atmosphere in the Pound Stretcher a bit odd or uncomfortable. Others in neighbouring shops and pubs also got in touch to talk about the bricked up tunnels which link many of the town centre premises. I will be exploring what we know about those tunnels in a future episode. Unfortunately, The History Society didn't have any additional information about the tunnels to share with me when I got in touch with them. They are as interested as we are to find out more about them. However, the History Society have invited me to speak early next year at one of their meetings, which is very exciting. I did get one new tip-off, and that was that the buildings at the back of the pound stretcher that were used for storage by the shop and are now part of the gym, were once an undertaker's mortuary. Now, I'd heard rumours about this before. I've searched the local newspapers, but I haven't found any undertakers advertising at that address, or nearby. But they could have used it solely as a mortuary, whilst their public-facing offices were elsewhere in town. I won't give up on this. I'll keep looking into it and I'll continue to investigate. I'm pretty sure there was a mortuary along Church Street, or Brewery Lane, as it used to be called. It's just finding out where. So if you know anything about the old mortuary, the pound stretchers, the furniture shop, Jones's Cafe or gym, in relation to this haunting, please do get in touch with me. Again, you can get in touch at weirdinthewade at gmail.com, or on Twitter, Insta and now threads. So just search Weird in the Wade as all one word on those social media platforms and you'll find us. There's links too in the show description. And back to that lovely cafe. It really is a great place to relax. It's always got a gentle buzz of conversation from people catching up after a workout to others holding quiet work meetings or tapping away on a laptop or just friends having a natter. And when I posted a picture from there recently, the wonderful Welsh storyteller Owen Staten commented that it must be a much nicer place for a spirit to dwell in now. And if you believe in such things, that the poltergeist activity is connected to the spirit of a young girl, then surely she must be much happier watching other young people work out at the gym and listening in on the local town gossip. Maybe that's why she's not making her presence felt so strongly. It's a nice thought. My second update is connected with both the Topless Hill UFO, which was covered in Episode 2, Flying Saucers Over Biggleswade, and the UFO seen over Potton and Wood in Episode 3, What's Haunting Pot and Wood? And the curious connection between the 1st of December for these cases. So we basically have UFO sightings around Bickleswade reported on the 1st of December 1953 over Wood. It was described as a cigar-shaped craft that had a fierce blue color. Later in 1956 and then again in 1957, we have a flying saucer spotted on the 30th of November and the 1st of December at Topless Hill. In 57, it's described as being amber in color. I was curious. Is there any particular reason why the 1st of December is cropping up for UFO sightings? I don't have an answer to that exactly. From a very quick look at UFO reports available on the government website, it's clear that more UFO sightings are reported in the winter months. It makes sense. Longer, darker nights mean people are still out and about when it is dark. But did find slightly more sightings between the 30th of November and the 3rd of December and I looked at you know random years than a similar random sample for the 1st to the 5th of April so this isn't scientific at all but it does seem to be that there are quite a few reports of UFOs cropping up around this time at the beginning of December I wondered if Christmas might have a part to play in it maybe decorations and lights going up. I don't know, but it's a thought. There's a very famous Ilkley Moore UFO and alien encounter that also happened on the 1st of December, but much later than our cases in the 50s. I can't really find anything significant though about the dates yet. But I have found that there are other reports of UFOs being seen on the 1st of December in 1953, and the 30th of November in 57, in other parts of the country. So it seems flying saucer sightings were coming in on the same night, as well as in Biggleswade. In 1953, we have reports from as far away as Dundee, Sevenoaks in Kent, Lincolnshire and South End in Essex for a fiery flying saucer being seen across the night sky. Initially it sounds like a shooting star. It's described as having a squashed roundish body and a long fiery tail. Except witnesses swear it's not a meteor or a shooting star. Some say it's as low as a church steeple and others are saying that it's flying much higher than that. They all say it's moving in a straight line and horizontally and not falling to earth, which is what you would expect maybe for a meteor. Our sighting on the same night at Potton Wood says that the craft had sparks coming off it, but not that it's fiery, and ours is like a blue colour. But it seems interesting that UFOs were being seen from one end of the country to the other on that very night, the 1st of December, 1953. And I think that is unusual. So I think it's fair to say that there was something in the night sky on the 1st of December in 1953. Um, and maybe then this UFO sighting isn't connected to Pot and Wood at all, but with something much bigger going on across the country. It does sound like it could be something, you know, space related, like a meteor or a, a shooting star or something. And yet this was put time and time again to the witnesses and they keep saying, no, it wasn't. I know what a shooting star looks like. So, yeah, it's really curious. For our 1957 sighting, you'll remember as well as the flying saucer being seen on the 1st of December, what was described as a miniature sun was seen in the sky the day before, on the 30th of November. It was this presence of a miniature sun that would let John Whitworth know that a flying saucer craft would make an appearance the next night. You'll probably remember that funny customer that came into his shop to tell him all this. Well, John wasn't the only person to see something round and fiery in the night sky on the 30th of November 1957. In the Isle of Man, Brighton and then further along the south coast, a fiery ball was reported. Again, it wasn't described as a shooting star or meteor and both the Met Office and Royal Air Force denied that there were any meteors or some other astronomical phenomena happening. There was no natural meteorological cause for this, they claimed. So could it be John's miniature sun was being seen so far away from Biggleswade across the country? And if so, what was it? Was it a comet or a shooting star of some kind, even if the scientists of the day said it couldn't be? How did John's funny customer know this thing was going to be in the sky that night to send him out looking for it? It poses more questions than it gives us answers. I will still keep digging, or should I say looking skyward for answers, Again if you've got any UFO sightings to report around Bedfordshire please let me know or if you have a theory about these fireball flying saucers then please do get in touch. And to our final update. Although our episode on Pottonwood wood has only just been released I've had a lot of responses to it. One chap got in touch to tell me that his mother remembered seeing the plane come down back in 1945 and what a terrible sight that must have been for her. The same man told me about a strange experience his uncle had whilst working at the Apple production facility. If you remember Copo, the Cox's Orange Pippin orchards, and then the co-op, managed the apple orchards around Cocaine Hatley, including a large warehouse for processing the apples. The warehouse still exists. It's an abandoned agricultural relic now, just next to Potton wood. My contact told me that his uncle had worked in that huge warehouse, and that there was talk of the land and the big house nearby being once the haunt of Henry VIII and three of his wives. And when I say haunt, I mean that not literally. Um, (laughs) When he was alive, (laughs) he was living there or visiting. There was also talk of either the de Grey or Grey family being there. Now, there's definitely an Edward Grey living at the manor at Cockane-Hatley in 1515, according to the Bedfordshire online records. He's described as an overlord living there whilst it's actually owned by the Cockane family he's kind of like looking after the place for them. So maybe it's this grey family that is remembered and is being connected to the ghost story that I was then told. Anyway, the chap who got in touch told me that his uncle was working in the Apple warehouse when he saw a woman in a long grey dress walking across the open warehouse in front of him. Not knowing who she was, and the fact that she was in strange clothing is I'm guessing what made him keep a close eye on her and see where she went. She disappeared around a corner, and when the worker went after her to see what she was up to, he realised that she hadn't turned a corner at all, as there was no corner to turn there. She'd walked straight through a wall. She was another grey lady, who possibly also had the name Grey, and that's the second we've come across in Bedfordshire. One of our bonus episodes is the Grey Lady of Silso, whose surname was De Grey. If you know anything about grey ladies at Cocaine Hatley, or the history of the old house there, and how it's connected to Henry VIII and three of his wives, then please do get in touch. I do have one other report relating to Potton Woods. Somebody got in touch with me on Twitter to tell me that they are visiting the woods twice a week to carry out butterfly surveys and other nature surveys, and they were able to tell me a little bit about some of the things that I found mysterious in the woods. So for example, you might remember that I described a kind of ladder and platform, like a viewing platform, at the crossroads in the middle of the woods. Now, We suspected, myself and Paul, that they may be related to hunting but we hoped that maybe they were observational posts as far as like monitoring nature was concerned. Sadly it is hunting. Apparently there are herds of roe deer and hunters do come and hunt for the deer at Cocaine Hatley and in uh, Potton Woods. So that is sad but it also might explain why I found it so incongruous and a little bit disturbing because at the back of my mind I probably did realise that this was for hunting. I um, I wonder whether they shut the woods as such, or try and discourage people from going in when there's hunting going on. It's something that you're not really used to in sort of rural England. Maybe when you're walking around Scotland and certainly in America um, or Canada, um, I've always been aware of the fact that there might be hunters in the woods, but it's certainly nothing that I would expect um, when I'm walking around woodland in England. They also told me that for the whole time that they've been there doing the nature uh, and butterfly surveys, they've not smelt burning at all. And I found that equally curious because so many other people have said that they have smelt burning and yet there is someone who's there very regularly and they've not smelt burning or smoke. So it does just, yeah, wonder what is going on there they did say that if there was a smell of smoke or burning that they felt that it was most likely to be burning coming from the fields um, around near about although obviously stubble burning um, is not allowed to happen anymore back in the 80s it was something i remember growing up around here um, in bedfordshire that the fields would be set alight and the stubble would be burnt and you couldn't hang out your washing for a few days Um, but thankfully that's a practice that's now not allowed so They didn't really help us with the mystery of the burning smell or the smoke, but they did solve the mystery of the ladder for us and were able to tell me that the butterflies are thriving at the moment in Potton Woods, which is lovely considering that there's been real um, problems with butterfly numbers over the last, well, decades really. So at the moment, they are um, measuring a good variety of butterflies in Potton Woods, which is always good news to hear. And now before I tell you a little bit about next month's two-part episode, I have a little tale of my own. Some of you who follow the podcast on social media will know that back in May, I went on a short holiday with my parents to stay in an old house connected with Rest Park at Silso. It was an amazing place to stay, and I can't recommend enough a visit to Rest Park itself and a holiday in this lovely house in its grounds. The house we stayed in was the old gardener's house. It was a square Georgian structure with high ceilings, lots of light and on the top floor there were oval windows, like little hobbit windows, looking out over the fields. I chose a room which had two beds in it, one of which was right next to one of these oval windows, which is the one I chose for me. The view from the window was of an avenue of chestnut trees in full blossom. The room was narrow and long, with the other bed in the opposite corner to mine. The door was on the left and behind me. It's important to know that layout of the room for later. The house overall was large, light and had a lovely quiet atmosphere. In the living room, light dappled through the silver birch trees outside, which lent it a really tranquil feel. There was a walled garden with yellow roses at the front door. And there was a really big tree in the middle of the garden full of noisy jackdaws. And it's the first night that we're staying at the gardener's house. It was still just light outside when I went to bed. Twilight. There was a low glow on the horizon. Birds were settling into the roost. I was looking out of my oval hobbit window and enjoying the view. But I reluctantly closed the curtains for sleep and lay down. My head was full of the usual sleepy whirl of the day that had just passed. A few minutes later when my eyes had got accustomed to the dark I started to look about the room and I wasn't really sure why or what it was I was looking for. I suddenly didn't feel so sleepy. Something was bothering me, a kind of scraping at the back of my mind. And then my gaze snagged on what it was that was unsettling me. There was an eerie orange glow coming from under the bed. My heart leapt. What the hell could it be? I leant out of my bed slightly and the light was definitely coming from under the bed at the other end of the room. For some reason, my mind immediately went to Close Encounters and that orange light shining under the kitchen door in the film. And that scared me as a kid when I first watched it. I'm surprised by my decisiveness in the next bit because I put my glasses on and I leant down as far as I could so that I could see under the other bed. And trembling, I saw what was causing the light. And the relief that rushed over me was also breathtaking. There under the other bed at the far end of the room was an extension lead for plugs and the sort that has an orange light on it to tell you that it still has power. I felt very silly for being scared of an extension lead but without my glasses the quality of the light was so diffuse and strange I just couldn't place it but once I'd put my glasses on I could see that it was that kind of orange light and then I could see the actual um, extension lead. But that wasn't the end of the spooky goings-on and this next bit I haven't told to anyone until now. It was some nights later And even after working out that the strange orange glow wasn't anything spooky, I still avoided looking down that end of the bedroom. It was a dark corner and I'm guessing it's only natural for us to avoid looking into dark shadowy corners, but what I saw next wasn't in that corner at all. I woke one night and still half asleep, I rolled over and saw a white sparkling light, kind of colour of moonlight. But very intense, shining at the top of the closed door to my bedroom. And I thought in my sleepy state, oh, it must be shining through that window at the top of the door. And at that point, I was completely certain that the bedroom door had a kind of fanlight above it. Now, I've stayed in old houses before that sometimes have them. I think even my Nan's Council flat used to. It was a strip of glass, sometimes frosted at the top of the door, above it, to let light in. I've also been to old schools with the same kind of doors and that's what I thought of as I marveled sleepily at this sparkling white light. It must be one of those doors like in an old school with a glass panel above it. How pretty the light is, how soothing and I nodded off back to sleep. In the morning I remembered the strange light and I was puzzled by how it had shone through that window above the door because I I couldn't work out where the light was coming from to reach that high. I was about to go and look when to my surprise I saw that the door didn't have a glass strip above it. It was a solid door and solid wall and it was still firmly shut. And then I thought back to what I had seen and I realised that it had been quite a large area of light and it wasn't above the door. It was at about head height much lower down and I was just completely flummoxed. It hadn't been frightening in any way. In fact, the light had been utterly beautiful, peaceful, like concentrated moonlight, but only more shimmery. I don't know what I saw, or if I saw anything. I could have been half asleep. It could have been a type of sleep paralysis, which I've experienced at least twice in my life, and they will be stories that I'll tell on another time, but it didn't feel like sleep paralysis. Whatever it was, it was positive, and the house had a wonderful graceful energy to it, so I wouldn't want anyone to think it was a scary place to stay, because it really wasn't. Now, The curtains were firmly closed and the light wasn't escaping from the curtains Um, and also the angle of where the window was. It was very low down. It was to my side. I could not work out how maybe something shining through the window or through a gap in the curtains might have made that kind of light on the door. There were also no mirrors around to reflect the light either. So I'm just completely flummoxed. I think the most logical explanation is that it was a kind of dream. Maybe I was more asleep than I realised and I just drifted off and I dreamt the whole thing. But if it, that's the case, it's one of those dreams where I it felt extremely real. So have you ever had a strange experience seeing lights like this? I'd love to know. And last but not least, some information about our next story and episodes about the Potten Poisoner. On Saturday, August the 5th this year, it will be 180 years to the day that a woman named Sarah Daisley was hanged publicly for the murder of her husband. She was suspected of killing a previous husband and her infant child as well. She was the last woman to be publicly hanged in Bedfordshire and she was known at the time as the Potten Poisoner. There's still, to this day, so much debate about her. Some see Sarah Daisley as a victim of a miscarriage of justice, that being a woman in Victorian times, her choices were so limited and she experienced such hardship and violence in her life that she can't be judged for her actions in the way she was judged at the time. Many feel that the misogyny of her times forced her to do terrible things. Others have labelled her the UK's first female serial killer on a technicality. Technically she was only convicted of one murder but because she was suspected of two others they argue that she should be the first female serial killer in the UK. And one recent academic paper calls her a she-devil and serial deviant a woman who should be reassessed along with all Victorian women through a different lens that doesn't cast them as victims. This academic thinks that Sarah was a bad to the bone and why can't a woman be bad to the bone? As always I think the truth is far more complicated. I've tried to uncover as much of her story from contemporary reports as I can. I've tried to look at her story with a modern eye, but also with the lens of her time. I think there are aspects of her life that to this day have been misreported, mistaken. Mistakes have been made early on in the narrative and they just get sloppily repeated. I think it's totally possible for someone to do bad things but also to live in a world that treats you badly and that you've got to consider both to understand what's going on here for her, for her victims and for the justice system at the time. And don't worry, this isn't a story of just history and true crime. I came across the story of the Pot and Poisoner because of a ghost story attached to it. It is a huge topic. As I mentioned, academic papers are still being written about her, so to fit the story into one episode is going to be tough. So I'll be making two episodes. I wasn't sure how to release them. I ran a poll to find out what people thought I should do. Three quarters of respondents said they preferred two episodes rather than one long one. And I agree. I think two episodes is much better. So it will be in two parts. Now, just over half of the respondents to the poll wanted the two episodes to come out in August and just over a quarter wanted episode one to be in August and episode two in September. And this is when I have a confession to make. I've not been very well for the last four or five weeks. My physical and mental health have taken a battering and it's been really difficult for me to balance work, the podcast and my health. I think I am on the mend now but it means I'm behind with the podcast. I always like to have an episode in hand, it takes the pressure off me and currently I don't. I've written the script and I know that I can record it and have it ready for the part one to go out in the next two to three weeks. So I may have to mix things up a bit for the next few months you see I'd also like to release a Halloween special just on or close to Halloween as well as sticking to the schedule. So I had a think and I looked at the calendar and I've decided to shift episodes along a bit. Instead of going out on the first Monday of the month they'll be going out on the last Monday of the month in Sered and ta-da! It means Pot and Poisoner Part 1 goes out on Monday the 31st of July, just six days before the anniversary of Sarah Daisley's execution. Part 2 will be out on Monday the 28th of August. Then we'll have an episode on the 25th of September, and then the 30th of October, just in time for Halloween. So the last Monday of the month will now be the day to look forward to for Weird in the Wade episodes. I will, wherever possible, try to create bonus episodes, but for August, that might be impossible. But here's a sneak preview of episode four, part one of The Pot and Poisoner. As the carriage makes its way up London Road towards the center of Biggleswade, they hear it. A roar of people. Superintendent Blunden sees a slight twitch on the young woman's brow, a slight frown, then her skin smooths again, her eyes clear. The other passengers look agitated. "What's that?" a lady in a fur hat demands. Blunden listens. A crowd, ma'am. Blunden doesn't want to alarm anyone by saying that it's a mob. The young woman in his custody, Sarah Daisley, speaks up. A crowd? What for? It's not market day. There's no fair planned. What is the crowd for? It's for you. Blunden meets Sarah's gaze and is shocked to see something like hope on her face, not the fear he expected. Then he knocks on the carriage to alert the driver the horses are already becoming spooked and the voices of the townsfolk and those from the wider county who have slunk into town is getting louder. Blunden hears the shouts of those positioned to watch for them. They're here, they're here, the carriage from London is here. Blunden knows that now the cry has gone out, more people will stumble out from the taverns and the inns and the drinking dens from the market square onto the high street, moving like one large beast rather than individuals, along Stratton Street, towards them, filling the road with their shouts, their stink and their overwrought emotions. The carriage trundles to a stop. You can't stop here! The woman in the fur hat flaps her hands in panic. Blunden ignores her. He is out of the carriage and conversing with the coachman. He has left Sarah by herself, though he is standing on the plate just outside the door blocking any escape. She wouldn't try to escape. She shakes her head as she sees the fur hat woman and her younger companion lurch further away from her now that the policeman is outside. Blunton is back in the coach and it is lurching forward towards the noise, towards the bodies and the shouts. It's not long until they can hear all the cries and make out the words. Murderer! witch, Sinner! Shameful! Criminal! Devil! Murderer! Poisoner! You can't hide from the law! Not Poisoner. from God, he sees all! The carriage slows and lurches through the people as they clamour and clatter The carriage does not stop, but Blunden is out of the door again and clambering up to the driver. Stop! Stop! Get back! Get back in the name of the law! This is how Sarah Daisley, the pot and poisoner, returns to Biggleswade on a cold March evening in 1843. She has been chased across the country by Superintendent Blunden, And has already been up in front of the Lord Mayor of London that morning. Now a prisoner she will face two inquests and a murder trial and will be found guilty of one poisoning by arsenic. Her trial will rely on cutting-edge forensic evidence but will also fail to challenge the inconsistencies in the evidence presented. Her life began very differently The daughter of a respectable businessman her prospects were as good as they could be for a victorian middle-class woman but now she is accused of murder of her husband and suspected of the murders of her previous husband and infant child she denies it all and always will Today she's remembered as possibly Britain's first female serial killer, an arsenic poisoner and a vengeful ghost to terrify children. Little is known of her victims, their families and friends. Very little is really known about her, but we'll pick through the facts, the newspaper reports, the exaggerations, and learn from what has been left out to piece together the story of the pot and poisoner, and its legacy that is still felt today. All next time on Weird in the Wade. Thank you for listening to Weird in the Wade. Weird in the Wade is researched, written and presented by me, Nat Doig. You can get in touch with us at weirdinthewade at gmail.com or on social media links are in the show notes. A transcript for today's episode can be found on the blog at weirdinthewade.blog. If you've enjoyed this and other episodes, please follow, rate and review the podcast because it really does help other people find the show. And if you are able to and would like to give something back to the podcast, we have a ko page where you can buy the podcast a coffee all contributions are gratefully received and go back into the podcast. Any funds are used for new equipment or field trips for recording future episodes. Anything is very gratefully received. Our theme music and Sarah's theme for The Pot and Poisoner are by Tess Savagir. Additional voices in the crowd scenes are by Savagir and McCohen And all other music and sound effects are by Epidemic Sound.